This is Frontiers in Economic Research. I'm your host, Brennan Cunningham, from Eastern Connecticut State University. This is episode one, dated October 3rd, 2017. This podcast is a brief summary of recent research in economics. I will include links to the papers in the show notes for those looking to deep dive with a particular paper. If you have any feedback, please send email to feedback at fer.fyi or visit fer.fyi where you can leave comments. In this episode, I host my second guest, and we discuss his research on immigration and labor markets. I also summarize a few key NBER working papers which were released last week. This collection had a significant number of papers on immigration and also on health economics. There will be one audio file containing a description of all the working papers in one shorter sub-episode, which covers developments in macro. There is no econometric sub-episode this week. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Vasil Yasinov. He is a postdoctoral scholar at the Goldman School of Public Policy in UC Berkeley, and he's also a research affiliate at IZA, the Institute for the Study of Labor. Um, Vasil, welcome to FER. Thank you for having me, Brendan. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And um, I wanted to uh, start with the discussion of um, one of the papers I saw, one of your recent papers entitled The Employment Effects of Mexican Repatriations, Evidence from the 1930s, um, co-authored with uh, Jean-Claude Lee, Giovanni Perry. And uh, I, I think this is a really fascinating paper because I think immigration um, is a topic a lot of people are discussing in a lot of different places now. Um, and there's, you know, lots of different views about the, the, the impact of the economic impact of immigration. Um, when I saw your paper, actually, it, it drew from, uh, I guess, a historical episode that I wasn't aware of. Um, and I think um, there's a lot of connections between that historical episode and, and our present day. Um, and so I was wondering if maybe you could just start us off by introducing kind of uh, what this episode was, how you think about it, um, kind of the general investigation that you you undertook. Uh, yes, Brandon, yes. Um, so I, I also wasn't aware of this historic episode until recently, but basically the story is that um, during the, the Great Depression, um, local and state governments ran a campaign of repatriating or returning Mexicans back to their home country. Um, and this resulted in, a, well, so there are many different estimates, but this resulted in about 400 to 500 Mexicans being returned back to Mexico in the span of a few years. So um, in, in terms of magnitude, this was about a third of all Mexican, of all people with Mexican heritage in the United States. So. Uh, yeah, that, that was a very big scale uh, event. Um, another feature of this campaign was that um, the distinction between legal and illegal immigrants was not really irrelevant. So as part of this program, even American citizens, as long as they were of Mexican heritage, were also um, sent back to, to Mexico. Wow. Um, right, uh, yeah. So, so it was not an official camp. Uh, it was not an official campaign, 
but um, his, some historians have documented, you know, um, certain actions undertaken by local authorities, communities, different groups, as well as with the help of the Mexican government to kind of force these repatriations. And actually recently, um, I don't remember exactly quite here, it's in the paper, but um, a senator from California, or there was some kind of a bill introduced to sort of officially um, apologize for this uh, historic moment. Uh, yeah, so I mean, nowadays it's kind of easy to talk about, but at that time this was a really a tragic kind of um, big shock to those people. Mm -hmm. uh, on other historic accounts, um, I read that so they were so these Mexicans were discriminated against in the United States, but also when they returned back to Mexico, they were also seen as you know not completely Mexican, um, as more Americanized. So they were also discriminated against there. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. And, you know, I guess one of the things that, um, some, sometimes you hear just in the discussion of, of immigration is, you know, this notion of kind of the, uh, distribution of employment and how, um, basically the labor market impact of people moving into or out of, a country and you know sometimes when i teach undergraduates uh introductory you know principles of macroeconomics we talk about kind of the three factors of production land labor and capital and um you know if country gets more land it has more productive potential and uh, in a lot of ways you could view you know immigration as a situation where a country gains a resource and um, that could have productive implications so do you look at that particular issue, sort of the the impact of these flows um, uh, on on the labor market? Um, yeah, so exactly, yeah. So those are really good points that you made, um, and that was exactly the motivation of this program. So um, the Great Depression hit 1929 with the financial crisis, and then so the unemployment went up, mm -hmm. as we all know. Uh, so then for um, some politicians, they blame this high unemployment uh, on the immigrants. And recently there's been a surge of uh, Mexican immigrants around that time, so they were the first one to, to blame. And actually in the paper we have some specific quotes, um, I'm not gonna read them. Oh, so here's one actually. Congressman Martin Diaz of Texas wrote in uh, Chicago Herald Examiner in 1930 saying that the large alien population is the basic cause of unemployment. And then, so this situation comes from Betton and Mall, 1973. So this kind of sentiment was widespread around that time and sort of a common feeling that um, politicians and even uh, some native workers had is that, yeah, yes, so we have more labor that came in, just as you said, another factor of production, and sort of that labor competed with the natives, which drove the unemployment up. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the main motivation. Um, mm -hmm of the program. And yeah, so naturally we look at the impact of this program on the labor market outcomes of native workers across cities in the United States. Okay. Um, so wage data is a little bit, uh, it's not available actually in the 1930 census. So we, we do a little bit of uh, wage effects, but we mostly concentrate on employment. So we analyzed uh, different cities. So some cities which had 
more Mexicans repatriated and we compare them with cities that, um, that did not have those Mexicans, uh, many Mexicans repatriated. And we look at, you know, the employment levels of natives. Mm-hmm. In 1930s, so uh, before the big repatriation wave happened, mm-hmm. and 1940 when the Great Depression was um, over and the repatriation program was also over. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think this is really a very critical question because I mean, not not only when it comes to immigration, but I think with a lot of different issues these days, um, there's a tendency to kind of view a lot of systems in the economy is almost like a zero sum process where if, if one thing goes up, then something else has to go down. Um, I did a presentation last week on universal basic income. Um, and the, the sentiment there is, well, if, if, if capital starts taking over a lot of these jobs, you know, if, if robots get better at driving trucks, then truck, you know, truck drivers are necessarily going to lose jobs. And, but, 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 you know, economies sometimes don't don't exactly work that way. And so, I mean, what did what did you find when it came to looking at the employment effects? Yeah. I mean, did you find exactly. this? Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, let me first say that's uh, a very good point about the zero sum game. I think it's kind of a widespread notion. Many people have the idea that um, you know if somebody gains, the other one has to lose, or there's a fixed number of jobs or fixed number of capital or quantities in the economy are fixed. Um, but in reality, more and more studies find that actually it's not that simple. There's a, a lot of adjustment mechanisms that take place. And oftentimes things cannot be explained by the simple model where there is a zero-sum game, someone comes in, someone else has to go, um, and so on. So in this paper, yes. So in this paper, we, we use census data. So I want to highlight that we have, um, full count census data available, which means everyone is uh, everyone who was um, live in 1930 and in 1940 is in our data set. Uh, and we the, uh, so we collapse those to city level. So we have uh, in, our, in our data set, we have 893 different cities and we observed them in 1983 and 19, oh, sorry, 1930 and in 1940. So we also, for control variables and for further outcomes, we also look at 1910, 1920, and 1950, but the main uh, kind of analysis, the main results rest on 1930, 1940. Uh, once again, so, so um, um, a difficulty that we encounter is that we do not have the exact count of the number of people who are repatriated. So that was not official program when we dig, dug in the archives, but we could not get a city count of how many people were sent back. Mm-hmm. Because so another problem is that the Great Depression hits, Mexicans or any kind of ethnic group may leave just because there are no jobs, right? They may voluntarily leave. So we kind of had mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. So that was a major difficulty. We kind of had to untangle the, the voluntary versus the repatriation or the forced uh, part of this uh, decrease in the population of, of uh, Mexicans. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this uh, methodology uh, in detail, but we, the overall results, uh, once again, uh, with comparing cities that have um, higher repatriation rate with cities that have lower repatriation rate, we find no statistically significant difference in the employment levels of natives mm-hmm. or the unemployment levels. And in fact, um, some of our, most of our estimates have uh, uh, 
give the idea that it, it could be the case that actually natives have had lost employment compared to cities who did not repatriate many Mexicans. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, this pattern is not strong enough to, to assert statistical significance so that we can make statements of this kind, but we have, we, so we have kind of a suggestive evidence that that could be the case. So, mm-hmm. so we're pretty certain about our zero result in the sense that native employment did not change, did not mm-hmm. go up or down, but it may have even gone down. Mm-hmm. to the cities or in the cities that have repatriated more uh, Mexicans. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it's very, very, very interesting. And um, now, and I've noticed that you've done a, um, a, other research related to this topic of, of labor flows and their impact. Do you find uh, results from, from this particular paper that are in any way related to the other research you've done or, in, in other parts of your research agenda, you're finding, you know, um, additional interesting results that you'd like to discuss. Or, uh, so that's that, that's a good question. Um, so very recently, maybe just a few months ago, uh, Michael Clements, Ethan Lewis, and Hannah Postel came out with a similar paper to this one, where they look at. I'm not sure if you've come across it. They look at the end of the Bracero program. So the, the Bracero program was a program recruiting Mexican laborers starting in 1942. And so I, I may be wrong, but I think in the earlier, the mid 60s, um, they ended the program all of a sudden. So this mm-hmm. resulted in um, an exclusion of, uh, I think their number is about 500,000 Mexicans all of a sudden from the agricultural sector. So that was again mm-hmm. a very big shock where where uh, labor supply is excluded or is taken out. Mm-hmm. And they reach actually very similar conclusions. Um, they find that natives' wages did not go up. And they, again, they talk about these adjustment mechanisms um, where uh, so the economy can adjust. It's not only the zero, so it's not only somebody leaves, so the other other people can take place. But you know, um, I think they talk about crop adjustment, so capital mm-hmm. adjustments. Firms can take make decisions to to um, deal with this uh, supply shock. So that's one. Another uh, another one um, of my own work. So recently looked um, at this historic. Mario Boatlift episode, and I'll describe it in just a second. Uh, um, so credit here to Giovanni Perry, who's also a co-author, of, uh, my co-author on, the, on that study. So the Mario Boatlift was a unique episode in, your, in the U.S. history, where in 1980, um, over the span just of a couple of, of a few months, Fidel Castro in Cuba. He said, uh, oh, okay, I'm, you know, informally speaking, of course, I'm opening the border. Whoever wants to leave to the United States, just feel free to, to go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so I think the numbers were about 120,000 people. Um, I hope that's right. 120,000 people over this, the span of three or four months left Mario in, uh, in Cuba and, and to arrive to the United States in boats. Uh, about half of them, there's evidence that about half of them settled in Miami. So that was another, again, a huge influx or a huge supply shock to uh, labor force in Miami. So, so in a way, this is exactly opposite to the studies that we just discussed, to this mm-hmm. Mexican repatriation study and to um, the study of Michael Clemens and his co-authors, where 
not you don't have an exclusion of people all of a sudden, but you have kind of you're adding labor force mm-hmm. over there. Mm-hmm. So these are, these are very valuable for us as economists because they provide this kind of their laboratory, this kind of experiments where we can see what happens mm-hmm. um, to to labor markets in response to these influxes. And in the United States history, there's only very few of them. Uh, whereas, uh, so other economists have analyzed similar episodes in, across um, the Middle East or Europe, mm-hmm. uh, but for the United States, we, we haven't had that many of them. Yeah, so in the Mary Boat Lift episode, basically we compare, we again take a data-driven approach, just as um, in this Mexican repatriation study, where we compare what happens in Miami's labor market for mm-hmm. wages and employment of natives, uh, and compare it to um, similar cities. So, we, so the the notion of this control group. So, we, we mm-hmm. think of Miami is being treated in the sense that it receives this uh, large uh, refugee wave, and we look at labor market characteristics of other cities across the United States, and we mm-hmm. kind of try to um, isolate the ones that are most similar to Miami in the 1970s in terms mm-hmm. of trends, in terms of demographics in terms of labor market characteristics things that uh, all kind of characteristics that affect wages and employment and then what we do is we just track the evolution of labor market outcomes for miami and for these control cities Mm -hmm. control cities could be um new york uh, so i'm just naming examples i'm not saying that's the particular one um Mm -hmm. it could be you know san jose or new york and new orleans i remember showed Mm -hmm. up Quite a bit, and so the bad part of, of the unfortunate part of this project is that we use um, data back in 1970s, which is um, not census data, but it's the data comes from the current population survey. Mm-hmm. So the sample sizes were much smaller, right? When especially mm-hmm. when we look at city level, right? so you can mm-hmm. look at state level, that's a different thing. But we want to uh, isolate the shock, so we want to compare uh, different cities. So there is a lot of noise in the data, uh, a lot more than we want, it, we want it to be. But we again, we find no evidence for large, you know, positive or negative deviations of the labor market outcomes for native workers and for particularly for low skilled. So we concentrate on low skilled native workers. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this goes back to, to the notion of the zero sum game that you mentioned earlier, which I think is a really strong notion. And Time and again, more and more studies find that that's not exactly how the economy operates. Even though it's a simple and a powerful model, it doesn't seem to hold um, um, in practice. And again, so another problem is the generalization of these. So these are okay studies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so one has to be careful in kind of generalizing um, these results to different time periods, to different um, geographic areas but they all point to the same conclusion sure absolutely absolutely i mean there's 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 very complicated processes going on in in a lot of these different settings you know i'm I'm reminded of say's law you know this notion that supply kind of creates its own demand so um when you when you bring in more labor um you know, it's also going to make jobs. And um, I think that that's where the the zero sum game uh, becomes a little bit harder to to see how it would hold. So 
Um, I, th I think it's actually really, really fascinating work you're doing. And I think it's very important when it comes to, to policy to think about the evidence that we have at, at hand regarding mechanisms work. Um, yeah. No, no, I think those are great points. I think especially in the immigration literature, this, this idea that you said there is not only supply, but there are also demand effects gets left out very, very often mm -hmm. um, and also gets forgotten by uh, economists or even non-economists alike. Uh, so maybe one reason is that it's difficult to quantify. So, so it's very easy to see how many people come in, right? Uh, it's, yeah. it's easy to keep track. But quantifying the demand effects of immigration, um, those are, maybe that's, that's one of the reasons those are more difficult to, to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is specifically for, for the immigration literature, so in a model where immigrants and natives are exactly the same kind of workers, they have the same kind of skills, you'll get these effects, right? So uh, maybe the, you know, the zero-sum game is a little bit more relevant there. Mm -hmm. But what we also what we have to note and acknowledge is that oftentimes immigrants and natives are kind of, they have different skills, they mm -hmm. concentrate on different occupations. Mm -hmm. uh, they come in different education groups, so mm -hmm. this really weakens the the competition effect that you may uh, envision if you have in, in in mind this simple model that you talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. And and um, one one last question. One question I like to ask my guests. Uh, you know, for um, one of the hard one of the things I've found that's particularly challenging about research is sort of coming up with the initial idea or kind of finding the inspiration for projects. Uh, do you have any, uh, would you be willing to share any information about sort of how you started getting interested in this topic? Was it through discussions with your uh, co-authors or some work you had been doing uh, through your graduate studies or, or, or how did you get involved in, in this line of study? So that's a very good question, right? Um, there's no easy answer. Sort of. Uh, so how did I get involved? Well, it's, I'm an immigrant myself. And a little bit ironically, I would say almost all the, the let me say, most of the major immigration economists in the United States are also immigrants. Interesting. Including the ones that are pushing for these adverse effects on labor markets. So it's a little bit ironic that if we didn't have um, immigrants, we may not even know that immigrants were bad or immigrants were good. That's right, that's right. Uh, that's right. Just being an immigrant myself, uh, you know, it's a very, so that's already an interesting question, but it's also kind of a classic question in labor economics. And it's a very, so, so that's one, right? It's a classic question. People that have um, uh, a lot of very smart economists have thought a lot about and have written a lot about. Uh, that's one factor. Second factor is in this particular field, the labor market effect of uh, immigrants, there is uh, there's a disagreement. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a wide range of estimates that people report. So that was also so that was also interesting to me. Why do so? The, it's true that the majority of studies find close to zero effects, mm -hmm. or small positive, small negative. That's the majority. But there are also some studies that report mostly large negative effects, and so the variance is very high. So one mm -hmm. thing that was interested in me is why does this happen? There, you know, we should sort of get to the bottom of that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. 
And third is perhaps policy relevance, right? So that's kind of an important issue. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people's lives, are, uh, lives, destinies, let's say, are at stake. So mm -hmm. the implication of migration and moving to other countries and how you affect the natives, that's, I think, a very important question that we should really know the answer and we, should, we shouldn't really... We should really kind of try to decrease the variance of these estimates that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's really fascinating research. And I'd, I'd like to thank you for, for joining me on the podcast today. Um, and I, I wish you the best of luck with your, with your research in this area and, and all others. And, and thanks again for coming on the show as a guest. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to getting more episodes. So please have them quicker. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll do my best on that. All right. All right. Thank you, Basil. Okay. All right. Bye. I wanted to mention that the title of the paper written by my guest is The Employment Effects of Mexican Repatriations, Evidence from the 1930s by Lee Perry Inyasinov. And my guest also wanted to mention that David Card in 1990 also uh, conducted a very detailed analysis of Cuban migration into America and the impact that of, of that migration on labor markets. The first paper in the uh, micro-series is entitled The Effects of Cognitive and Non-Cognitive Skills on Migration Decisions. The authors observe that there is growing evidence that cognitive and non-cognitive skills affect the economic and social outcomes of individuals. In, the, in this paper, the authors analyze how they affect the migration decisions of individuals during their lifetimes. The authors use data that combine military enlistment and administrative records for the male population born in 1932 and 1933 in Norway. They then find that adaptability and cognitive ability have significant and positive impacts on the probability of an individual migrating out of his area. Adaptability has a particularly strong impact on migration for individuals with low cognitive skills. The authors also show that cognitive skills have a strong positive effect on the pre- and post-migration wage differential. As I mentioned earlier, the title of the paper is The Effects of Cognitive and Non-Cognitive Skills on Ma Migration Decisions by Buda Kofer and Perry, and you can find a link to the paper at number two in the show notes. In the next paper, the authors explore health economics. More specifically, they investigate the link between hospital performance and managerial education, and they do this by collecting a large database of management practices and skills in hospitals across nine countries. The authors, the authors find that hospitals that are closer to universities, offering both medical education and business education, have higher management quality, more MBA-trained managers, and lower mortality rates. The authors then argue that supplying joint MBA healthcare courses may be a channel through which universities increase medical business skills and raise clinical performance. The title of the paper is Healthy Business, Managerial Education and Management in Healthcare by Bloom, Lemos, Seden, and Van Rienen. And you can find a link to the paper in number three in the show notes.
next paper is also in the field of health economics. The authors observe that in markets for health services, vertical integration may have both pro- and anti-competitive effects. Despite that observation, no empirical research has examined the consequence of multi-specialty physician practice, which is a common and increasing form of vertical integration for physician prices. The authors use data on 40 million commercially insured individuals from the Healthcare Cost Institute to construct indices of the price of a standard office visit to general practice and specialist physicians for the years 2008 through 12. They then match this measure, excuse me, they then match this to measures of the characteristics of physician practices and physician markets based on Medicare Part B claims and they aggregate physicians into practices based on their receipt of payments under a common taxpayer identification number. They find that holding fixed the, the degree of competition in their own specialty, generalist physicians charge higher prices when they are integrated with specialist physicians. The title of the paper is Does Multi-Specialty Practice Enhance Physician Market Power? by Baker, Bundorf, and Kessler, and you can find the paper at link number four in the show notes. In the next paper, the authors are list interested in investigating, in investigating the impact of so-called civil asset forfeiture laws. These are laws which allow police to actually um, seize assets from people um, who are potentially conducting crimes. So I don't know if you've ever seen the television show Miami Vice, I'm kind of dating myself here, but the police in that show uh, drove around in very expensive luxury cars and um, in and in part that's presumably as a consequence of this ability to seize those cars. So the authors observe that the 1984 Federal Comprehensive Crime Control Act, or CCCA, included a provision that permitted local law enforcement agencies to share up to 80% of the proceeds derived from civil asset forfeitures obtained in joint operations with federal authorities. The authors investigate how that rule governing forfeited assets influenced crime and police incentives by taking advantage of pre-existing differences in state-level civil asset forfeiture law and the timing of the CCCA. We've, the authors find that after the CCCA was enacted, crime fell about 17% in places where the federal law allowed police to retain more of their seized assets than state law previously allowed. Equitable sharing also led police agencies to reallocate their effort toward the policing of drug crimes. The reallocation of effort, however, brought an unintended cost in the form of increased roadway fatalities, seemingly from reduced enforcement of traffic laws, which is a pretty interesting result, I find. The title of the paper is Civil Asset Forfeiture, Crime and Police Incentives by Cantor Kitchens and Kitchens and Pawlowski, and you can find the paper at link number 5 in the show notes. The next paper is focused on the issue of venture financing, venture capital financing. The author of the paper studies how early-stage entrepreneurs learn about the quality of their ventures. She assesses the effect of negative feedback on venture abandonment using application and judging data from 87 new venture competitions, some of which privately informed ventures of their relative rank. She uses a difference in differences design and two matching estimators to compare lower and higher ranked losers across co competitions in which they did and did not observe their standing. 
Receiving negative feedback increased venture abandonment by about 13%. The effect occurs quickly, doubles among women founders, and increases with signal precision. It, it also decreases with venture maturity and riskiness. The title of the paper is Learning from Feedback, Evidence from New Ventures by Howell, and you can find the paper at link number 6 in the show notes. The next paper is a first of two environmental economics papers, and I find it uh, pretty fascinating. So the authors are interested in looking at DuPont, which was one of the most respectable U.S. companies, but it caused environmental damage that ended up costing the company around a billion dollars. The authors use internal company documents disclosed in trials, and they rule out the possibilities that this bad outcome was due to ignorance, an unexpected realization, or a problem of bad governance. The documents they explore suggest that the polluting was actually a rational decision. Under reasonable probabilities of detection, polluting was ex-ante-optimal from the company's perspective. One common reason for the failures of deterrence mechanisms is that the company controls most of the information and its release. The authors also sketch potential ways to mitigate that problem. The title of the paper is Pollution Value Maximizing the DuPont Case by Shapira and Zingales, and you can find the paper at link number 7 in the show notes. The next paper is also in the field of environmental economics. The authors observe that most regulations designed to reduce environmental externalities impose costs on individuals and firms. There's an active body of research which has explored how these costs are disproportionately borne by different sectors of the economy and or across different groups of individuals. The authors then review this burgeoning literature and develop a simple and general framework for focusing future empirical investigations. They apply their framework to findings related to the economic impact of air pollution, deforestation, and climate, and they highlight important areas for future research. A recurring challenge to understanding the distributional effects of environmental damages is is distinguishing between cases where populations are exposed to different levels or changes in an environmental good, and where an incremental change in the environment may have very different implications for some populations. The authors then close by stating that understanding the determinants of heterogeneity in environmental benefits and damages is crucial for welfare analysis and policy design. The title of the paper is The Distribution of Environmental Damages by Xiang, Oliva, and Walker, and you can find the paper at link 8 in the show notes. The next paper is in the field of the economics of education. The authors contribute to the school competition literature by evaluating a program that randomly assigned private schools to underserved villages in Pakistan. Program schools were provided a per-student subsidy to provide tuition-free primary education, with half of the treated villages receiving a higher subsidy for female students. The program increased enrollment by 30 percentage points and test scores by 0.63 standard deviations. The effects were similar across genders and across the two subsidy treatments. Program schools were of higher quality than nearby government schools. The title of the paper is Delivering Education to the Underserved Through a Public-Private Partnership Program in Pakistan by Barrera Osorio, Blakesley, Hoover, Linden, Raju, and Ryan. And you can find the paper at link 9 in the show notes. 
The next paper is on models of search. The authors contribute an essay which surveys the literature on directed slash competitive search covering theory and applications. They observe that these models share features with traditional search theory, yet differ in important ways. They share features with general equilibrium theory, but with explicit frictions. Equilibria in these frameworks are typically efficient in part because markets price goods plus the time required to get them. The approach is tractable, tractable and arguably realistic. Emphasizing issues and applications, the authors also provide several hard-to-find technical results. The title of the paper is directed Search, a Guided Tour by Wright, Kircher, Julian, and Guerreri. And you can find the paper at link number 10 in the show notes. We next turn to the macroeconomics papers. In the first paper, the authors document the importance of covenant violations in transmitting bank health to non-financial firms using a new supervisory data set of bank loans. The authors observe that <coughs> excuse me, the authors observe that more than one third of loans in their data breach a covenant during the 2008 to 2009 period providing lenders the opportunity to force a renegotiation of loan terms or to accelerate repayment of otherwise long-term credit. Quantitatively, the reduction in credit to borrowers with long-term credit but who violate a covenant accounts for approximately 11% decline in the volume of loans and commitments outstanding during the 2008 to 2009 crisis. And this is a similar magnitude to the total contraction in credit during that period. The authors conclude that the transmission of bank health to non-financial firms occurs largely through the loan covenant channel. And I think that's a very important discovery. The title of the paper is The Loan Covenant Channel, How Bank Health Transmits to the Real Economy by Chedora Reich and Falato. And you can find the paper at link number 11 in the show notes. The next paper is on the macroeconomic implications of innovation. The authors investigate the link between declining firm entry, aging incumbent firms, and sluggish U.S. productivity growth. They apply their framework to the newly developed Revenue-Enhanced Longitudinal Business Database, or RELBD. Overall, several key findings emerge. First, the relationship between firm age and productivity growth is downward-sloping and convex. Second, the magnitudes are substantial and significant, but fade quickly, with nearly two-thirds of the effect disappearing after five years and nearly the entire effect disappearing after ten. Third, the higher productivity growth of young firms is driven nearly exclusively by the forces of selection and reallocation. The author's results suggest a cumulative drag on aggregate productivity of 3.1% since 1980, which is a pretty significant drag. The patterns are broadly consistent with a standard model of firm dynamics with monopolistic competition. The title of the paper is Older and Slower, The Startup Deficit's Lasting Effects on Aggregate Productivity Growth by Allen, Berger, Dent, and Pugsley, and you can find the paper at link number 12 in the show notes. The next paper is on the issue of sovereign debt. The authors reject a common assumption in the sovereign debt literature. 
they document that creditor losses, so-called haircuts, during sovereign restructuring episodes are asymmetric across debt instruments. They find that haircuts on shorter-term debt are larger than those on debt of longer maturity. The data confirms the predicted relation between perceived default risk, bond prices, and haircuts by maturity. The title of the paper is Sovereign Bond Prices, Haircuts, and Maturity by Asanuma, Niepelt, and Rancière, and you can find the paper at link number 13 in the show notes. The next paper is focused on the issue of mechanism design. The author observes that despite decades of research on mechanism design and on many practical aspects of cost-benefit analysis, one of the most basic and ubiquitous features of regulation as actually implemented throughout the world has received little theoretical attention. Exemptions for small firms. In many settings, optimal regulatory schemes involve subtle effects and have counterintuitive features. For example, higher regulatory costs need not favor higher exemptions, and the incentives of firms to drop output to become exempt can be too weak, as well as too strong. The title of the paper is Optimal Regulation with Exemptions by Kaplow, and you can find the paper at link number 14 in the show notes. The author of the next paper begins by observing that there is a presumption that Pareto-efficient taxation entails a positive tax on capital. When tax and expenditure policies can affect the market distribution of income, those effects need to be taken into account, reducing the burden imposed on distortionary redistribution. The final section of the paper considers taxation when there are constraints on the imposition of intergenerational transfers. It constructs a simple two-class model, capitalists who maximize dynastic welfare and workers who save for retirement, and whose productivity can be enhanced by publicly provided education. The model derives a simple expression for the optimal capital tax, which is positive so long as the social welfare function is sufficiently egalitarian. Excuse me, equalitarian. The title of the paper is Pareto Efficient Taxation and Expenditures Pre and Redistribution by Stiglitz, and you can find the paper at link number 15 in the show notes. The next paper focuses on exchange rates. The authors analyze the role of real exchange rate, RER, policies in promoting economic development. They observe that markets provide a sub-optimal amount of investment in sectors characterized by learning spillovers. The authors then show that a stable and competitive RER policy may correct for this externality and other related market failures. So I think this is a pretty interesting observation connecting exchange rate policy and innovation or productivity growth in an economy. The resulting development of these sectors leads to overall faster economic growth. The title of the paper is Real Exchange Rate Policies for Economic Development by Guzman, Ocampo, and Stiglitz, and you can find the paper at link number 16 in the show notes. The next and final paper assesses the current state of evidence on how international trade shapes inequality and poverty through its influence on earnings and employment opportunities. 
The paper concludes with a survey of evidence on several policies that could mitigate the adverse effects of import competition. The title of the paper is The Impact of Trade on Inequality in Developing Countries by Pavnik, and you can find the paper at link number 17 in the show notes. This has been Frontiers in Economic Research. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.